sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Thanks so much for listening. And the way you get involved is we are the story guys at gmail.com. Can I start today by painting a picture for you? It's a it, mental picture. What if I just like pulled out an easel right now? I was. I just. This is what I really imagine, and this is messed up. I, ima- I imagined you in like some kind of weird but small provocative underwear with wings, with wings going Murdoch. Dig if you will the picture, and I was like, Brian's gonna paint. A picture. Listen, this is a dangerous space to get in between our ears and really access the brains that you and I carry around in our Mm -hmm. bodies. I feel bad for anyone that willingly does that, but thank you for doing that. Here's the picture I want to paint for you. It's a mental picture. It's of 17-year-old me. Uh, I was uh, even skinnier than I am now, and it's the year 2000, and I am on a coach bus headed to a journalism convention. <laughs> so you're going to a, Yeah, this is this is how I partied in high school journalism conventions. Uh traveling from Hot Springs, Arkansas to Kansas City, Missouri. Right on. Uh and I have my discman because it is the year 2000. It's firmly attached in my hand. My headphones are on, much like the ones I'm wearing now. At some point in the journey, the CD books have been passed around the coach bus. Because it's passing around the CD books. Well, yeah. Oh, I just kept them myself. Oh, so this was a thing. Yeah, you were looking at other people's because you're on this trip and other people bring CDs. So you're looking. You didn't peruse other people's collections. Yeah, but I thought you meant like you were just taking and like showing them around, and people were listening to other people's CDs. Well, that's what I was doing. I don't know if that's what other people were doing, but anyway. So I end up with Christina Delgado's CD book. Christina Delgado, an important figure in my life, though I haven't talked to her in decades. Uh, she is part of two of the of very important musical memories of my life. One of them is this, and the other one was she attended the first Third Eye Blind show I ever went to with me, and we got stuck in the second row of the mosh pit at the very front of the amphitheater, and it's the physically closest I've ever been with a woman up to that point in my life. You're 17. Oh my gosh. You know what I mean? Like you get smashed and, it's, and I was like, this is uncomfortable. She's gorgeous. I don't know what to do. We were never romantic. We were just friends. Uh, but we had some musical interests in common, I guess. And so we we did some things together. Anyway, so Christina and I are on this bus. And at some point, I don't even think I was sitting with her, but I have her CD book and I open it up and I am I'm distracted or at least I am contained for a few moments by this silver disc that looks old uh in, in the in its presentation and it is the cbs records 1976 self-titled album by a band called boston <gasps> oh now, doing this oh my I, I, i'd heard of boston but at this point okay here i'm gonna really mess with your brain at this point this story this this album is 24 years old okay now if you had it uh, an album that had just come out when i was on that bus in the year 2000 would be almost 24 years old yeah and so now it's it's almost 40, 50 years 50 old, years, yeah, <laughs> which is nuts. Yeah. And it still sounds so good. And that's that's the thing. On this bus, I put this on, and I and I think I'd heard more than a feeling at this point. So I'm, I'm guessing that was the frame of reference that probably led me to putting the disc on in the you first place. Ha- you had to have right. more than a feeling. But I still remember after listening from front to back to that record 
on this bus trip, removing my headphones and feeling like the world had shifted. Yeah. Rock and roll band, peace of mind. I just couldn't. I I think I might have even said out loud, who the hell is that and why does it sound so good? Like, I'd never heard a record that old that sound. I kept looking at the date being like, 77. This book, this came out when? And it sounds like uh, this? Yeah. Like, Kiss Alive 2 came out, Frampton Alive came out, and it's like, those were like pretty heavy things, but like, they're live records and that Kiss audience is fake. And, this sounds like it was made like a symphony or something, it's, or like there's a there's a it's classical hard figure. to describe. If you've like never heard that, I don't know why you would listen to this podcast if you've never heard Boston before. But if you're just an academic, curious person who is trying to learn things and you've never heard this Boston record, just pause this podcast and go turn on that Boston record because. It's absolutely amazing. Do you know the alternate title for that record was Tom Schultz fucks around in his basement? I <laughs> know <laughs> so, it wasn't. So we have to talk we have to talk about what the deal is so that everybody understands. Yeah, I mean explain explain that. Like it, it, it's crazy. In the in the 21st century in the second decade of the 21st third I don't know how, wherever we wherever are. Wherever we are. In the in this the, I guess the third decade of the 21st century. The story of some dude locking himself in his house and playing all the instruments on an album is like super common. Like that doesn't seem weird at all. Jack White. Uh, well, and, and like basically every Gen X keyboard kid that's out there right yeah. now on SoundCloud. Yeah. But th- th- in 1976, that was not common. And there are some right. crazy things about this. Like first, now you can do it fairly cheaply. In 1974, building a studio in your basement is as expensive as hell, man. Yeah, yeah. And I can't even imagine what Eddie Van Halen did with 5150 to piss off Ted Templeman and build that thing. So how did he, what did he use the money from? Was it for like honeymoon? Was that what I heard? Well, no, so close. It was supposed to be a down payment on his house. This is an actual quote from Tom. It was a huge gamble. I was married at the time, and that money was supposed to be for a down payment on a house, and I spent it all. It was very uncomfortable. (laughs) Really, Tom? (laughs) It was uncomfortable? Like, did he live in a red roof inn for six months after that? I'm just thinking of how freezed out he had to have been by the woman involved in this story. Like, can you imagine? Yeah, that's some CB in happening. (laughs) That is, like, I mean, down payment on a house... So here's more. You have to it, really it, be into the guy, I guess. Quote, in 1970, notice he he was married at the time. Like, <laughs> that was a past marriage. Right. Uh, in 1974, I basically blew all my money. I had been working for five years at that point. I took all that money, and I spent it on recording equipment. I'd been bumming around playing in local bands that didn't have a future. I knew that I was going nowhere unless I started doing what I knew I could do and started doing it myself. If you want it done right, do it yourself. I knew that all I ever could do was play once in a while and no one would really listen to my music so i quit playing with bands and i set up in my basement and i went to work and out of that came peace of mind rock and roll band hit your ride and don't be afraid yeah and man if i had to narrow it down to one moment that blew my 17 year old mind on that coach bus it is that fucking guitar solo in hit your ride oh yeah Totally. And I'm trying to think, like, so more than a feeling was already imprinted and tattooed, like, all over me at some point, just because of, like, I was born three years before the Boston record came out. So just listening to the radio, like, rock radio, that was a... It was everywhere. Right. It was everywhere. And then, um, you know, that second record came out. We can talk about, like, when it came out or whatever. but, But the third record came out when I was, like, 12. You were a third stage guy? Yeah, well, I'm not really. Like, if you listen to the sound of it, it definitely doesn't sound as amazing as the first record, which is right. hilarious because it's it, it's like a decade younger. Yeah. Um, but I, 
but because of the age, like it was something that came out and I was like listening to it. And it was, even though there was already a classic rock band, it, it just didn't sound like anybody else still. Well, you know, between the second and third record, he spends several years just inventing gear for people. Like other bands will take his gear Wait. on the road. Yeah. That's how that, that's what that's. We're going to talk about Tom Schultz and like the, the type of personality. Basically, he's Steve Jobs in a band. Yeah, right. Like he's supposed to be this wizard. He's this wizard he is guy. a wizard who doesn't know how to deal with people. Like we're just cut to the chase. Spoiler alert of where the story is going. But he's a man out of time. Like he's got this real Gen Z energy where <laughs> about taking his destiny in his own hands. Like that quote up there uh, about what he did in 1974 is like what I feel like most interviews with new babies. Well, bro, no, 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 make it so I had to like do it myself. So I like went and I bought a laptop and like I, it feels very much like current sort of. Uh, mentality that people take on but to to build this thing you got to think if he's building it at that point in he had to have some serious engineering know-how and he does because he went to mit he went to mit i forgot that's right that's right this dude was no dummy he graduated high school in ohio uh, in 65 and then he goes to the east coast to get his bachelor's degree and his master's degree and he had a job Somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He worked for Polaroid. Yeah, yeah. Totally weird. Yeah. So this whole time, though, he has a music bug. Like, he wants to be in a band. He So he ends up building this thing in his basement and starts recording stuff. He tr- he tries, though, for a while to do the band stuff. We'll talk about that in a minute. And it like, he just, like he says in that quote, he, he couldn't make it work in a way that he saw a future. So he tr- tried to take it in his own hands. But when he creates all this music in his basement... The one thing he doesn't think he can do sing is sing. Yeah. So he's got a guy who becomes the other part of this story that's very important, and his name is Brad Delp. Yeah. Uh, this is a Rolling Stone interview in 07. I met Brad, soft-spoken and unassuming, when he auditioned in a recording studio outside of Boston one night to sing several songs I'd written. Having endured countless sessions with other singers, most with undeserved egos, <laughs> I had only yeah you would know something about undeserved egos I, well I guess deserved egos in Tom's case I had only the faintest glimmer of hope that he might be good enough to squeak by as a suitable vocalist he didn't warm up he just listened to the pre-recorded instrument track once and then he started to sing and I don't know if it took two seconds or three but before he finished singing the first line I knew that some guardian angel had just delivered to me one of the best vocalists ever to step up to a microphone how do you feel about that description of Brad Delp. Um, Boston is not Boston without him. I mean, and they try to be later. Yeah, they did. But and they get close with our boy from Striper yeah, in but the 2000s. I, I'm going to say no <laughs> to your, they got close. The only thing, Matt, Matthew Sweet, like it, the only thing for him was, was Striper, for sure, for me. Yeah, I, I listened yeah. to Hell the Devil, to Hell to the Devil the other way, like, oh my gosh. Like, <laughs> and honestly. You know they're coming to town, right? Yes, I do. <laughs> Uh, I listened to the, those. I listened to ballad and that thing, and oh my god! Like I can't believe I still like those Striper songs. Uh, well, okay, so Brad Delp is this classic case, right? He sees the Beatles on Ed Sullivan as a kid, and he gets obsessed. And after Boston, he actually has a side project for two decades. Did you know this? Called Beetlejuice, Mm-mm. a Beatles tribute act. Mm-mm. Yeah, mm, what? That's how obsessed he is with the Beatles. And he, when he sees them on Ed Sullivan, 
uh, it will make him learn to play and then start bands in high school and then play clubs when he's a young adult working a factory job. And at some point, the story I dug up is that he's auditioning guitarists for one of these club bands he's forming, and he meets this guy named Barry Goudreau. And he doesn't choose Barry, interestingly, but Barry is impressed with him. And when Barry is talking to his friend Tom Schultz, who's been screwing around trying to make rock records in his basement and needs a vocalist, Barry introduces hmm. the two of them. Got it. Now, when you start reading about this band history, it becomes pretty clear in between the lines that Tom Schultz is probably a genius and definitely a pain in the ass to work with. Yes. So the the thing that has always hit me is that there was a tragedy with this scenario, which is having a very a, a figure that's not like a hero, like the anti-hero villain person that isn't the you want everything to be pretty and rosy. And it's right. Not. Yeah. Right. And I mean, that's usually the case, right? You got somebody with very clear vision and very intense work ethic and they're going to be hard to collaborate with. Yeah. Like um, uh, Stern had Rod Stewart on and, and Stern, Howard Stern asked him about like, hey, did Led Zeppelin rip off the Jeff Beck group? And Rob was like, yeah, they did. And then he asked him to his face, so was Jeff, Jeff, Beck, was a, Jeff Beck was a prick, right? He was just a prick. <laughs> and he's like, are you asking me this? And then Rod Stewart says, yeah, he was a prick to work with. And it's like, think about that, like in terms of how important Jeff Beck was as a guitar player and like, and, and to have people go like, well, he's a genius, but yeah, he's kind of a douchebag. Well, in any sort of project like this, especially when you're dealing with somebody who clearly is on a different level, I mean, the things that he has, he created in his life have proven, like I just said, a listening experience 20 years ago to an album that was at the time 25 years old and now is 50 years old. Uh, and still sounds like gold and was made in a basement in, in his small apartment. To this or, day, still sounds Yeah, good. still sounds amazing, right? So like, it, it does take that sort of gumption because otherwise people talk themselves out of things or they bring other people in because they don't want to hurt feelings. They, they, you, it takes a lot to go so hard in the paint for something you believe in. And a lot of people just don't do it. There's a whole amazing This American Life episode where... Uh, they get into this concept. I don't know if we've ever talked about it on the show before, but the, the example he uses is Rick Barry, right? But the basketball player who would shoot underhanded and he had a really good free throw percentage, but he would try to teach other people on his team to get their free throw percentage up. And they'd be like, I'm not doing that because I look like an idiot. When I look I, like, yeah, it's like, it's your gig doing, looking like an idiot underhand basketball. Like. It, right. And so what he explains, what, what the This American Life episode explains is that there is this concept about what you're willing to do like like how much other people's uh, acceptance matters to you is on like a scale. And huh. so some people like that scale just doesn't exist. And those are the people who tend to be visionaries who change the world. But the flip side is that they also tend to be very hard to get along with interpersonally. Or just in like at best socially they have difficulties in one way or another, whether you want to say it's part of their personality or a mental illness or something or whatever. Right. Like it's just different because it's difficult for them to relate or feel comfortable in in some social settings. It's just part right. of the deal because you're, you're working on the stuff up there in your brain. Yeah. And when you see the absolute truth of something, this will, this will mean that I am better at the free throw line. Why would I not do this? You, you don't understand why anybody would care. If you look like an idiot yeah. doing it underhanded, right? Because right. 
it is going to yield better results. And so it makes it, there's a lot of friction when you have to work in a group. So when you're working in a rock and roll band and you feel that there is a very specific way everything needs to be done, people don't want to work with you. Right, because you become a hired gun, and and those and people don't want to be hired guns unless they they're straight up like understand they're being hired as an employee. A hundred percent. So as I dug around this story that we heard from Tom in the open about his sacrificing his mortgage payment and a gamble to make the record he could hear in his head, you have to understand that this is after he's been working with Goudreau and Delp trying to make it as a unit. So there's a point where they are in the early 70s where they are a band. And he basically decides that if he's going to do it and, and get it done the way it should be done, then he has to do it by himself. Goudreau is and will go on to be a guitarist for Boston. But at the point of the creation of the record, Tom cuts him out. He does it all because he has this vision and drive for perfection. So can you imagine they like... If I just cut you out of everything and then said, okay, now come back in and because I have to have you to take this on the road, right? Like yeah. there's you, you're, you weren't good enough to create it, but I guess you're good enough to help me execute it because I have to. And that's the situation that they literally find themselves in later is that they can't tour this without a band. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you can't do this all in the basement and hit the road. So with that little tweak to the background, story that I just gave you. Listen to me reread the quote. In 1974, I basically blew all my money. I had been working for five years at that point. I took all the money and spent it on recording equipment. I had been bumming around playing in local bands that didn't have a future. Bands that had Brad Delp and Goudreau in them. Oh, well, that's, you know what I mean? Like that's, wow. that's if you think about this quote again, you're like, oh God, I knew that I was going nowhere unless I started doing what I knew I could do and started doing it myself. Pronouns matter. (laughs) Keep going. Keep going. There's more to that quote. Uh, There's a little bit more. Uh, So then he says, I knew that all I would ever do was play once in a while in a club and have no one listen to my music. So I quit playing with bands at that point and I set up in my basement and I went to work. Are you just trying to play a joke on us about what a pain in the ass he is? (laughs) Because you have... Uh, you have arrived. Okay, because of where we're going, it's important that everyone understands this. Okay, I mean, I, I realize I'm overselling it, but this becomes a key component of this entire story. I, I'm trying to give you context because what unfolds over the length of this band is that there is one guy at the center striving for perfect, perfection, and everybody else is just trying to hang on. Yeah, and play. Right. They're just they're just trying to white knuckle it. Yeah. Um, I mean, the quote is really tricky. You read it one way, it's a hero story. You read it another way, and it's the saga of a lonely asshole. Yeah, but he was right. But he was right. <laughs> I mean, that's that's what's crazy about it. So Epic Records will sign them off these basement demos where he does everything but sing and play drums, and it will end up on CBS. And I said earlier there were like multiple crazy things about this whole endeavor. Here's one. They have a hurdle for them to jump through. The record sounds so badass when they get it. Yeah. Uh, and you also have to understand that before, like, so they, they float this record around for a while and it takes a while for somebody to bite on it. And then when they bite on it, the folks are like, this is cool. I want to see this band perform proof of concept. And so now Tom is, is sort of fucked. What are we going to do? He's got to build a band and there's no fucking band. So he quick they quickly round up fellow musicians. I'm reading from an article here. Fellow musicians from the Boston scene who had been close to them over the years. It, okay, keep going. They rent a warehouse space from. You say it, Aerosmith. Are we really going to get to? <laughs> is there an Aerosmith connection? There's an Aerosmith connection in that they're from Boston. Isn't it weird that for me, if you said 
Boston rock and roll band. I'd go Aerosmith instead of Boston. It's like such a weird thing that you... I wouldn't. I would say Boston. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, no, you're right. And so they, they rent this warehouse from those dudes, which is hilarious to me for some reason. And they start figuring out how to play this stuff from Tom's head. Remember, he's done it all. He's overdubbed it and overdubbed it. Tom and Brad, this is from the article, Tom, Brad, temporary drummer Dave Courier, and uh, bassist Francis Sheehan, uh, and then they call back the guy that introduced them, Barry Goudreau. So it's all those guys in a warehouse. And it works. They get signed to a fucking 10-album contract. Ten, from, from a demo? And listen, that 10 albums, is del- it's deliverable in six years. Which, okay, if you know anything about Boston right now, you're laughing because there have not been 10 Boston albums in 50 years. Can I ask a question? Go for it. Is that temporary drummer the same guy from Full House? <laughs> That's Dave Coulier, oh. not Dave Courier. Oh. Though I think I'm pronouncing his name wrong probably because of Dave Coulier. It's French. <laughs> I like, it I might s- just be Dave Courier. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. Uh, so th- this is this is wild. Ten, ten, ten album deal. We, if you've listened to the show for a while, you, we talk about this, right? Like the standards at which output was expected were insane in the earlier days of rock and roll. Yeah, because you just keep making, you keep recording. And if you look at like some of these massive bands and their catalog and and you'll say, like, I think we did this the other day with, with Black Sabbath, right? And it was like, man, those three records came out within the course of three and a half years or something, like yeah. their three biggest records. Yeah, and and I saw a thing the other day, it was like, only equal at this point is Kill 'em All, Ride the Lightning, Master Puppets. Like, who else is like, hit a one, two, three, like, right out of the thing? But like, pretty much once you get to the late 70s, how's anybody going to do 10 albums? Like, it's almost- it's, six it's, years? It's almost like winning the best new artist at the Grammys. Like, it's, it's like a, a death wish. It's yeah, a curse. It's like, it's, you don't want it to happen. So, here's another crazy thing about this story. Epic's other condition is that they re-record the demos. Because they're like, you did this in a basement. Let's like put you in an actual studio. You need to come to LA. You need to be in a re- quote unquote real studio. Hmm. Now, putting more evidence in the Tom is difficult to work with file, Tom absolutely refuses. <laughs> uh, he, because he knows best, right? Well, it's, yeah, it's, these are my record, my tunes. And, I know and this sounds amazing. How am I going to make this sound possibly sound better? So this is what he does. They give him John Boylan. John Boylan will produce that record. And that I guess he's he's label aside. And so Tom calls him and is like, I'm not going to. I'm not doing this. And he goes, okay, listen. That's fine. These sound really good. Just re-record them at your house, and then I'll mix them in L.A., and I'll split the producer credit with you. So weird. So Boylan and Tom Schultz split the producer credit on that 1976 record, if you look at it. Uh, I mean, there are so many ways that artists get hosed and... <laughs> and he hosts the record label, which is sort of which is sort of great. I guess, yeah. I mean, what a trick too. They bought it. So, quote from Tom: When you hear more than a feeling, that is a couple of weeks of me relaying the guitar tracks down just the way I did on the demos. And so this album hits the world in the face. It's like it is like it's a huge, fast-selling record, right? Right. And then, I mean. I, I think I saw like a Nirvana live at the Reading Festival, and they start playing more than a feeling. Oh, really? And they, and they stop it, and then start playing. <laughs> they start playing Teen Spirit, and you realize like, oh, they're kind of the same. 
Oh, wow. Right? Like, yeah. they're kind yeah. of the same, right? And so, but wait, wait, wait. So, can we talk about the album cover? Because I remember buying it used oh. and thinking I was looking at this as the coolest looking album cover. Like, Dude, what, like, what they somehow like, like completely nailed that aesthetic. Like other yeah. bands will try it for the next decade or so. That like space rock. Yeah. And, and even once you got to third stage, they had a song called Cool Your Cool the Engines or Cool Your Engines or whatever. And it's like got the same kind of art. Like they stayed with it. They stuck with the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh which is funny because they could have just gone hardcore Boston into their name, right? They could have done things about the city. They could, you know, they could have done more like what Chicago did, which was like stylize the name and stick with. But no, man, they just like leaned into this weird space thing, the sci-fi look, and it totally works. I mean, and it's memorable, right? Because go ahead, name someone else that has album art that they aren't dressed like kabuki weird guys. I'm, you know, who I'm talking about. <laughs> who has great album art that automatically you're like, oh yeah, I got it. And they're not on the cover, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're. I mean, it, it it ages so well. Part of you you point out something really interesting, which is that something's going to age better when it's not tied to a style of the times, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And you know, n- never mind has no connectivity to anything because the little boy with the penis grew up and sued them. <laughs> right? There is coverage of that in our back catalog somewhere if you want to go diving for it. Okay, so. Uh, I, it's notable, you know, I mentioned I saw this out of a, uh, a CD booklet from my friend, Christina, and so I didn't see the album art when I first heard the record all the way you through. Had, you were in a I sandwich think, of CDs. I think I'd seen it before. Oh, but you know what? Is I'm pretty sure that over there in that box, I have the I have Christina's CD. That's the part of the story I haven't told, which is I fucking took it. <laughs> oh, awesome. oh, I don't yeah. think, I think I asked her, I was like, do you want this? I like, I'm sure she was like my brother or my dad or somebody who stuck it in there. Right. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I still have that copy. Yeah. That has stayed with me for the last 24 years, which is, <laughs> that's so amazing. Oh my gosh. Wait. So do we need to, okay. Big smash, big single, big record. Um, so there's nine to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this the, is what we need the, to the classic thing happens. They have to fulfill that contract. And we're talking about a motherfucker who spent six years on one album and yeah. he's supposed to do nine more in that same amount of time. Yeah. So this is where the Tom Schultz reputation gets really cemented, right? He just refuses. He can and won't take the pressure. He, again, he's at the free throw line shooting underhanded. He's like, this is how we do this. My obvious reaction after falling in love with this one album on this bus ride was to figure out what else they had made. And it is a shockingly small amount of output. Yeah, it's smaller than Guns N' Roses. Well, and what's interesting, too, is that at this point, like, so they'll put an album out after I discover them on that bus, right? Mm -hmm. Like one or two. Two. Because they'll put out one in the early 2000s and then one in like 2013. But up yeah. to that, there's only there's only three. There's Don't Look Back and Third Stage. Yeah, which is so insane. Yeah. Uh, and that, that next record Super gets short. delayed by two years. And from, it's short. Yeah, it's like 29 minutes. Yeah, it's like but, a Misfits record. Now, people love it. The fans are ready for it. But it's it's very short. I mean, even the first Boston record's only nine tracks. And, and this, this is the tour with... Bernie? Oh my God! Are we going to talk about Bernie? <laughs> Do you want to explain that Bernie is not a person? <laughs> no, it's not Bernie Toppin. It's a, it's a, it's a pipe organ, and it's, it's they, 
they made it and spent a lot of money on like it. Like a hundred grand in 1978 or whatever year this is on it, this pipe organ. It said Birdie is your name. <laughs> like what a I don't. I, I want to know how they came to that. Yeah. I, um. Oh my gosh. It, and this is like a really great example of Tom's audacious aspiration. Yeah. And is this wait? So. Did they have like the Elvis thing? Like, where did they did they not tour in Europe or the they, Far East? They did. So on this tour, they make it to the UK at least. But then again, I mean, like, what happens, and we're about to talk about this, is that they are really limited by Tom's perfectionism. Well, yeah, it's significant. This tour is significant for for the UK for Bernie, but also it's the end of the original lineup. They get back exhausted. Tom is fighting with the management. Think things will never be the same. And uh, for all, those of you who would like to. Do a little tango with us. The probably want to start calling this show "Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories Lawsuits." Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's like we've just talked about so many lawsuits. We have uh, recently, especially it's it's been all about lawsuits. I feel like I I, I have earned a, an honorary law degree like researching this stuff. Uh, why don't we get Morgan and Morgan to sponsor our show? <laughs> I wonder. I feel like I could write that pitch. It, you point something out. If the first word to describe Tom is like visionary, the second word is litigious. Like, this dude fucking loves to sue people. Here's a quote. When I got off the road, I wasn't sure I wanted to ever go on tour again. Brad told me that he didn't ever want to go on tour again. I was going to hang it up and just record. I took a little time off after Don't Look Back. I was drained. I was more than drained. I was demoralized. That's a that's an interesting word. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure I wanted to be in the music business at all. I didn't like what I had seen. Brad and I had made a lot of money for a lot of people, and I didn't like what they were doing. I began... To feel guilty about enabling people to do things I didn't approve of. That is one hell of a self-righteous quote. Yeah. um, yeah. Brad and I made a lot of money for a lot of people, and I didn't like what they were doing with it. Unless he's talking about like child slavery or sex trafficking being what they were doing, uh, it seems like he could use a lift off his high horse. Well, the other thing is that I I have a big problem with people that want to conduct themselves and tell people how else to do their thing like just yeah, like you're being an asshole too bro yeah i mean it's like live and let live but also in this case like dude you're you're in boston like just try to sell the tickets man do the gig <laughs> well devil, devil horns get off stage don't look back woo and and you know but that's not that's not his, his style and, and yeah. that is what this illustrates right it's like this constant reminder that tom and brad made something that then became dependent on others in its ultimate form, and they didn't like having to share it. Not so much out of greed, but out of the sense of ownership. Like this, we are the only ones who can do this the right way. Yeah, and it's uh, strange. This intimately creates something, and they have to watch other people perform it. Right, like it's. I think it's very personal to them. Yeah. And so it does feel cringy or sacrilegious in a way, or almost perverted to watch somebody else, to watch Goudreau go out there and play the guitar line. And we see this, right? Like, especially with Goudreau. The 80s are rough. Tom's fighting specifically with their manager at first because it was this classic case of the manager was getting a cut of the songwriting and Tom didn't realize that and he was pissed. Uh, And those suits, just about that issue, drag on until 1994. But then he starts, like I, I mentioned Goudreau, then he starts fighting with members of the band. But then he, like, that's when he tells everybody to do solo stuff. Well, but he tells he, them to, and then he gets mad when they do it. And then, but he plays with Goudreau, right? Is that well, the, Brad goes and plays with Goudreau. Oh, like before. 
Well, like, like so they ago. had they had all played together, yeah. And then Goudreau's gonna like he like Tom's like, listen, we need a break. I'm gonna start inventing crap for other bands to take on tour and to you know it's like guitar sounds and stuff. And then you guys can go do solo stuff if you want. So Goudreau's the first one out of the gate to be like, well, hell yeah, I'm gonna go do that. But here's what happens. So he puts out this solo record, and the record label is promoting it, and they take out an ad that basically says something about that Goudreau is the guitar sound in Boston. There's like a tagline for it. Wow. But it's like, you've always wondered, you've heard him in Boston, now here's the man behind the the legendary guitar sound in Boston. And Tom's like, I'm gonna, bullshit. I'm going to hire a lawyer. Right. And so he gets really, really pissed because he, he literally removed Goudreau from the equation in order to invent that guitar sound, and now he's getting credit for it. But he's just mad at the label. Then the label starts to fuck with him because he is taking so long to deliver new music, they quit sending him royalty checks. Oh, shit. That's Uh, that's difficult. Louder Sound chronicled all this shit in a long and thorough piece back in 2020, and I'm borrowing heavily from it today, so go find that in the show notes if you want to get into the nitty-gritty. But just know that while he is on and off in court with that manager that he's pissed off about, he starts going on and off to court with CBS Records. And that drags out for most of the 80s as well. He actually gets money out of this. He wins. Yeah. So here's the thing about Tom. Most of the time he wins the lawsuits. You know, you said earlier when I was joking about like his vision, how he like claimed that he had to be in charge of the vision for it to work, and he was like, right? Like, he is right about most of these things. But he's also... Probably not very fun to be around. <laughs> well, it doesn't sound like it so far. You haven't painted any rose-colored glasses for, uh, for this guy. Eventually, Goudreau will leave the band with a settlement. They actually figure out a way. They're, I read some quote that Tom was mad because Goudreau got cut in early. They decided to cut him in even on songs he didn't write, so he continues to get payouts from that. He starts a band called Orion the Hunter. Did you ever listen to them? No. Lead singer is Fran Cosmo, who becomes an important part of the story in a few minutes. Okay. They put out an album, but then Boston also, even while all this is going on, in the middle of the 80s, does release that third record. And that's the one called Third Stage. Yeah, it is. And uh, has Amanda on it. I have to tell my Amanda story. I feel like you have an Amanda story we all need to hear. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> First, I will say this. In terms of Amanda songs, this is not my favorite Amanda song. And this is Mandy gonna... by Barry Manilow? Nah. There was a uh there was a Dennis Quaid movie with Christy McNichol and <laughs> and Dennis Quaid played a character named Travis Child. All the words you're saying. It's, it's the movie was called The Nights the Lights Went Out in George. It was oh, named after yeah, the yeah, song. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And they had there was a song called Amanda that he sang in it. But I digress. I just told you about being having a crush on Christy McNichol from nothing wrong with that. Yeah, for sure. Um, So my babysitter was her name was Amanda. Oh yeah, she was, and she was across the street, and she read Star Wars books and all kinds of things. And I was like, oh, little little kid, but she was blonde. That's all I remember. Um, And then I saw her later in life uh, with her whole family at a a funeral service that I had to go to because of someone in my family, and I remembered. The whole family's allergic to deodorant. Okay, so like, li- this, like literally I've, allergic to deodorant. I've told the story. Like, is that medically diagnosed, or did they just use that as an excuse for stinking? Well, 
Look, <laughs> if you're me and you get that as a story, and then you get put in a situation where the whole family's there right there, and you go, hmm, let me put a thermometer. Seems like it's right. Can we get back to Boston? That's embarrassing. Oh, my God. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think if I ever had a crush on a girl named Amanda. That may be the age difference. Like, there was a different... Like, Jennifer was a little more uh, of the time for me, right? It's the time for me, too. Yeah. It's like yeah. a million of them. Yeah. What's the Mike Doty song? I went to school with 27 Jennifers. <laughs> That's right. So good. Okay. Uh, at this point... We need to zoom back in on the relationship that started this journey a decade before, because that's where we're going for the rest of this, okay. and that is Tom and Brad. Uh, for the real meat of the story, the rough ending we're headed towards relies on understanding the relationship between these two dudes. So let's head here. End of the 80s, after third stage, Brad will go to Tom, and he will, he will say he's out of the band. So he stays out of the band September of 88 until January of 94, and he is working now on a project with Goudreau again. Ironically, Tom doesn't miss a beat because Goudreau and Delp are working together. Tom goes and gets Goudreau's other singer, Frank Cosmo. <laughs> and wow. Fra- uh, of course he would. Douchebag. <laughs> and so Frank Cosmo is in the band from 88 to 94. And then they create the 1994 record. And I'm blanking and didn't write down what the name of that record is. And I'm blanking because I didn't listen to it. <laughs> they're dead after so, third stage so they well and I think to a lot of people they are but they make this record and then in that intervening period because again it takes forever uh, they are going to go on tour with it and at that point the Orion the Hunter stuff and the Goudreau side project stuff are all drying up and so Delp comes back and says I'll go I'll tour but they now have a problem because Frank Cosmo's there. Yeah. And so basically for the next like 15 years, Boston will have two singers. And when they tour, they'll tour with both of them. Oh, I didn't know that at all. Yeah, that's nuts. Yeah. So I know, are we going to talk with, about what happened to Brad so I can say this now? You okay. want to drop a trigger sure, warning? Sure. So this is a trigger warning for everybody that's listening. So if you know nothing about Boston and their history, and this is the first time you've heard about this amazing singer... This is a very dark story about mental health um, and someone uh, taking their life. So, so this is you, you get back out now and just know everything up to third stage. <laughs> that's it. So if you're like like everything when they got that striper guy, like screw him. Like, yeah, you, yeah, you're just fine. What you can we'll, right. Where's another episode right after this one that'll be awesome? That yeah, happens. feel free to go elsewhere in the catalog. We will not hold it against you. This is also a very personal thing to me and I'm not going to go into super detail about how he does this because I lost a friend to suicide 10 years ago who, who did the same method. So I'm not going to go into that. And if you are, if, if you want to go find that out, you can dig around in the show notes and hear what he did. But just know that on March 9th, 2007, Brad is found by his fiance, Pamela Sullivan, and he has succumbed to carbon monoxide poisoning. Obviously this is tragic and shocking and it's a terrible way to end this story. And so Everyone becomes sort of frantic looking for answers in the aftermath of this in 2007. So over the days after the death, stories and details start to leak out. And the local media in Boston is covering the story because obviously the band is called Boston. Yeah, and they're huge. Worldwide. Even in 2007, right? Like the legacy 30 years on is still, uh, you know, we're ta- we've, we've spent, what, 40 minutes or something talking about the legacy of this band? Like, you know, that's how, it, it was. it's a big deal. And so there are several newspapers at the time, I'm actually not sure they're all active anymore, but there's actually several newspapers in Boston. 
And one of them is the Boston Herald. Yeah. Sure. And the Boston Herald puts a few reporters who I think cover entertainment specifically, a trio of folks on their on this story. It is uh, Gail Fee, Laura Raposa, and Aaron Hayes. And they release a story on the 15th of March in 2007. So this happens on the 9th. And so this is about a week later. And it is entitled Suicide Confirmed in Delp's Death. In this article, there are some statements made about why Brad Delp might have taken his own life. Let me just read you parts of this article. Again, you can find all this stuff archived in the show notes. Friends said it was Delp's constant need to help and please people that may have driven him to despair. He was literally the man in the middle of the bitter, break, the bitter breakup of Boston, pulled from both sides by divided loyalties. Delp remained on good terms with both Tom Schultz, the MIT grad who founded the band, and Barry Goudreau, Fran Sheehan, Sib Hashian and other former members of Boston who had a fierce falling out with Schultz in the 80s. Delp tried to please both by continuing to contribute his vocals to Schultz's Boston projects while also remaining close to his former bandmates. The situation was complicated by the fact that Delp's ex-wife, Mickey, is the sister of Goudreau's wife, Connie. Wow. Okay. Quote, Tom made him do the Boston stuff and the other guys were mad that they weren't part of it, said another insider. He was always under a lot of pressure. And then... This article gets sort of into a blame game. I'll read a little bit more. Schultz's penchant for perfection and his well-chronicled control issues, which we just chronicled well here, led to long delays between albums. As a result, Goudreau, Delp, and Hashlin released an album without him, which led to an irretrievable breakdown. So that's the solo thing they do when they leave. Without him. Schultz claimed that the other band members, with the exception of Delp, attempted to steal the name Boston. We haven't talked about this because I didn't actually read a lot about this in all the flurry of lawsuits that was happening. But as the article says, while the bitter battle raged on, Delp tried to keep peace with both sides. He continued to perform with Schultz and he reconstituted Boston, but also did projects with Goudreau, remained friends with other members. But the never-ending bitterness may have been too much for the sensitive singer to endure. Just last fall, the ugliness flared again when Schultz heard some of his ex-bandmates were planning to perform a tribute concert for a football legend and then had his people call and substitute himself and Delp for the gig instead of the other members of Boston. Boston. <laughs> so Boston like, football. Is it Flutie? Uh, yeah, it was Flutie. Oh, my God. I mean, look at those shoulder pads just show up on my 100-barely-pound <laughs> frame. Okay. Um, and uh, what does that tell you, asked another insider. Brad and Tom were the best of friends, and he's been told nothing about anything. So, anyway, this is all... This is pretty rough stuff. Yeah. And it's, it's in the press. It's in the press, right? Yeah. So you have but, family. Everyone reads everything. But to, but to make it worse, that was March 15th. On March 16th, the paper uses the same reporters, and they publish a separate story where they interview Brad Delp's second wife and the mother of his children. He has adult children at this point. Quote, no one can possibly understand the pressure he was under, said Mickey Delp, the mother of Delp's two kids, in an exclusive interview. Brad lived his life to please everyone else. He would go out of his way and hurt himself before he would hurt somebody else, and he was in such a predicament professionally that no matter what he did, a friend of his would be hurt. Because uh, there was this whole thing where like they were going to go on tour and they weren't going to invite Fran Cosmo, and like apparently that was a thing at the time between Brad and Tom where they were disagreeing about that. Uh, but according to Tom Schultz, the MIT-educated engineer who founded the band back in 76, the decision to drop Cosmo was not final, blah, blah, blah. And to put the finger-pointing cherry on top of this whole accusation Sunday... The headline that ran with this article, because what she says doesn't sound that bad, but the headline 
that the Boston Herald runs mm-hmm. is Pal's snub made Delp do it. Oh, that's so gross. Boston Rocker's ex-wife speaks. So it's eight days later now, March 24th, and just one of the three writers originally covering this story is credited with this piece. I'll read from that. The bitter feud between the surviving members of the band Boston exploded anew yesterday with band founder Tom Schultz firing off a letter to the ex-wife of singer Brad Delp, demanding she stop making, quote, statements in which you place any blame whatsoever on Schultz for Delp's suicide. So given what we have learned about Tom Schultz, do you have any guesses about what this guy is going to do next? He's going to sue somebody, <laughs> right? I mean, that, that seems pretty self-evident. I mean, without even knowing that, like, I'm going to sue somebody, like, I, it so makes he, sense. he sues the Boston Herald and Mickey Delp for libel. This will string out for years. It really doesn't end until 2014. So it wow. lasts, yeah, it lasts for over six years. Yeah. Did he win? Uh, no, he loses. Uh, no, I went to journalism school. So I hear this story and I know immediately that he has no case. If you're not familiar with how libel works, very quickly, let me break it down. The Herald statements are protected opinion because they disclose truthful facts as the basis of the statements. You say it, you back it up, basic stuff. And they allowed readers to draw their own conclusions from the facts presented. Now, the headline is probably on the line, but it's attributed to Mickey Delp as opposed to being a statement made by the paper. Mm-hmm. So I think that's probably how they get clear of it. Um, but it's really interesting because Tom loses in court for libel, but he sort of wins in the court of public opinion and he sort of wins by accident. Yeah. Okay. So do I, we other trigger warning, about the we, other thing, we probably need to throw right. another trigger warning about sex abuse and stuff. This okay. is rough. So Brad was engaged to what was, going to be his third wife. So he's was married once twice younger Then he. The second wife is where he has kids and then he's single for a while and he's engaged to this woman and her name is Pamela Sullivan. Now I don't know how he met Pamela Sullivan, but it might've been through her sister because he is very close friends with her sister, Megan. And they're not just friends, they're roommates, platonic roommates for two and a half years. Meg will describe Brad in the court documents as having been, quote unquote, her best friend. And it will come out in the course of the case uh, that Meg was the confidant to Brad the summer before this happened. So the summer Mm. of 2006, when Brad had figured out that Pamela was cheating on him. But what no one knew in the press or otherwise until the court papers are made public in 2012. So this is like sort of put to rest. Tom's pissed about how he's being dragged through the mud and there's court cases going on, but like he died in 07. There's like a tribute concert to him and all that stuff, right? So we're all the way to 2012 and there's this flurry of action again around what happened to Brad Delp in Boston because the court documents get loose in the press and it is made public that in the weeks before Brad's suicide, Meg, his soon-to-be sister-in-law, discovered that Brad had planted a hidden camera in her room. And other than the real creepy part, any other reason other than being creepy? There, I mean, there's no explanation. Anything I read... It's just creepy. ...is just that he... Like, that's where they stop. Not that, like, he'd sold the videos or he yeah. had an archive of videos or whatever. Right. He, she just discovers, like, it falls... It's a battery-operated thing that was hidden somewhere and it, like, falls into the room. 
from its hiding place. Oh, well, that's like... And she's like, what the fuck is it? Because he owns the house. That's the thing that's like not made very clear when you read this, but like she's living with him. Because, I mean, he's the lead singer of Boston, so he's like got this nice house and she's living in a bedroom. So he legally can videotape... No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. (laughs) I'm just just saying. (laughs) It doesn't matter if you own the house, you jerk. Well, right, right, 100%. What I mean, though, is that like it's not... it, 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 Yeah. You're right. We're together. I was just making, yeah. trying so, to make fun of an awful situation. Uh, so here's, you know, he starts writing a bunch of apology letters. And she immediately, like, leaves the house and calls her boyfriend. The boyfriend actually works for a band that Brad is associated with, I think, or maybe that she's associated with. But then he, he had been an employee of Boston at some point. So, like, they're all friends. And the the boyfriend keeps going like, okay, listen, like you have to go tell Pamela, your fiance, about this. Like, don't make us do that. Like, Meg is being really nice to you by not going and telling her sister about this and giving you the opportunity to tell tell your sister. So there's this like series of emails that all get entered into the court documents where he's like begging for forgiveness and then like asking for an extension on how long he can wait to tell Pamela because he like doesn't know how to tell her and all this sort of stuff. He finally like gives them a date that he's going to tell her. And then that's the day where he goes to Home Depot and starts buying supplies to meet his own demise. So it's like very clear that terrible mental health, lots of issues. Yeah. And Tom Schultz and their relationship definitely didn't help anything. Yeah. But it would be pretty hard to pin this entirely on Tom Schultz's behavior. Yeah, you have to make when that decision happens, it's you can't blame other people for those decisions. Oh man. Uh, it's 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 a really rough story. One of the suicide notes he leaves, he leaves four. One of them uh, says, I have had bouts of depression and thoughts of suicide since I was a teenager. And he will also state that Pamela, is his fiance, was, quote, my ray of sunshine. But sometimes even a ray of sunshine is no substitute for a good psychiatrist. No shit, man. And in all seriousness, before we wrap up, if you're having suicidal thoughts or struggling with depression, anxiety, addiction, please know help is available. You can pick up a phone right now and dial 988. Uh, you can check the show notes. We will put further resources in there, including an organization I love called To Write Love on Our Arms please seek help. So, so it's a hard place to end, but to tell the story all the way through, this is where we end. And I, I think maybe what we do to exit is pick an awesome Boston B side to play out. Oh, B side. Yeah. Instead oh. of one of the hits. What do you, what do you, what do you like? What's your jam? That's not more than a feeling or foreplay long time or, uh, well, it's not a B side, but, right, right. but we're ready. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And it's like, it's not like, you know, in your face or devil horns at all. Well, I mean. It's, I, it's like really kind of quiet. and it, we're, we're ending on a subdued note. I think that's okay. I think so. Yeah. All right. Sure. So if you want to get involved in the show, it's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram, backslash rock and roll bedtime stories, uh, patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. If you want to financially contribute to this chaos, uh, you will get bonus content and extra fun stuff. And uh, until next time, what should people keep doing, Mark? Keep telling stories. 